Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by Hannah Abrams and Tony Brew. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. Hey, Avi. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Not too bad. All right, let's dive right in. So today's show is the next in a series on intern questions that Hannah has come across and encountered during the first half of her intern year. And today she's going to walk us through a question that came up with, I believe, one of your students. Is that correct? Yeah, first half of my intern year. Oh, my God. Uh, So usually when I'm looking into a question for a tutorial or a podcast, I want to have a full body of literature before I feel like we can talk about it. But the whole point of this series is really to just talk through some curiosity questions that have come up during my intern year. Sometimes they've led to some dead ends, but talk through what evidence there is out there um, and how we've sort of been able to look into them. That's great. So. Yeah, so what's the question for this week? Okay, so the question for this week is, can DIC itself cause shock or hypotension? And if so, how? All right, so that's two questions. Yeah, I cheated. Um, (laughs) I have a lot of questions, Tony. I'm an intern. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so why these specific questions? And I I think you alluded to uh, a med student. So, so yeah, so what happened? Uh, I had this really amazing medical student a while back, um, and we admitted a patient together who uh, was in shock and was also in DIC, or disseminated intravascular coagulation. And so this student was going through a really beautiful differential diagnosis for why the patient might be in shock. And it came up that this concept that DIC itself might actually be causing some component of the shock. There was this like really smart senior resident around who was like, oh, well, you know, DIC itself can contribute to shock. And this is a a sort of challenging question to answer, but I had never thought about DIC itself causing shock because usually I think of DIC as being the consequence of other stuff that is bad and also causes shock, most notably sepsis. And so I was trying to figure out how would I tease those two things out uh, and what exactly would I make of it sort of clinically. So I guess it, it might be valuable to spend a minute talking about like just what DIC is in general. And I have a very non-specialist way of thinking about it. And it's basically, I begin clotting too much as a result of, frankly, I just think about it in the setting of sepsis and, and then maybe cancer. And then I consume all my coagulation factors and platelets. And so I start bleeding. Is that, is that, am I getting it too, yeah. is that too simplistic? I think of it like it's a, it's like a blood fire. A blood fire. Oh my god. <laughs> does that does that help with the explanation, Avi? <laughs> what exactly it's is my, a like, blood fire? It's my like very rudimentary intense way of thinking about this blood is on fire. <laughs> it's like that meme where it's like this is fine. It's the the DIC thing. Yeah, no, I I mean that's exactly how I think of it too. Um but just sort of to redefine for for everybody, it's a consumptive coagulopathy. So we are massively systemically activating and using up the components of the clotting system. And so the the sort of problem there is that you have both diffuse clotting and you have consumption of all of the available clotting factors causing a risk of bleeding, uh, which are that seems two bad. things that are both not good. And it is unfortunately a manifestation that can be of a lot of different things. Underlying systemic dysfunction from sepsis, metastatic cancer, trauma, pancreatitis, amniotic fluid embolus, a couple of kind of common causes. So you mentioned that, Anna, that you know, a lot of these entities can cause hypotension and shock. So like, how in the world could we ever differentiate the shock from the source of the shock? 
like the underlying problem that triggers the DIC and the component of the shock that might be from the DIC itself. This was, in fact, the the question that faced me and my medical student uh, that day. So the first sort of way to think about it is, okay, well, there are some causes of DIC that do not necessarily involve hypotension. And so there's a series of, and essentially, if we could induce an aseptic or non-hypotension causing cause of DIC and then observe the physiology, could we see if DIC in itself could be associated with shock? So there's a, a series of experiments that happened in the 1940s and 1950s that tried to essentially answer that question by using animal models. And I will just briefly interject here that um, if you are sensitive to uh, these kinds of animal studies, I would probably stop listening here. So what they did was they injected trypsin intravenously into a series of rats and rabbits. And what they found was that just injecting trypsin resulted in fatal circulatory collapse. To answer sort of what exactly is going on then, um, they conducted postmortem exams of these rats and rabbits. And what they found was that there was diffuse clots in the cardiac circulation, in the pulmonary circulation, in the hepatic circulation, and in the renal circulation. All right, so, so this, this sounds like an example where DIC is associated with hypotension in a state that wouldn't otherwise be thought of as causing hypotension. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Although we don't normally inject trypsin. Fair enough. I, I, yeah. I certainly don't do that. I don't know what Avi <laughs> does in his ICU, but I, I, don't, I don't do that on the wards typically. So, but then how do we know um, which is the chicken and which is the egg here? Is it the DIC causing the hypotension or the hypotension causing the DIC? Exactly. So we have thus far said, okay, we can induce a cause of DIC that we don't think should normally cause hypotension. And we find that just inducing the DIC then causes hypotension. So we know that hypotension and DIC are associated. But is it just that we've made the patient hypotensive and that's causing them to go into DIC? Uh, sort of what's going on? And a couple of different groups essentially took the approach of trying to figure that out. And one of the common experimental approaches that they took was giving heparin prior to inducing DIC. Um, and so one of the largest studies was a study in a, a series of dogs in which they injected either amniotic fluid or incompatible blood transfusions, uh, both of which should cause DIC, in populations of dogs that had received heparin prior or had not. And in both cases, either with amniotic fluid injection or with incompatible blood transfusion, the dogs that were treated with heparin previously had significantly less fall in their blood pressure. So in the amniotic fluid injection group, the fall in blood pressure on average was 91.7 millimeters of mercury. And in the heparinized group, it was seven. So about a tenfold or greater than tenfold difference. It was less in the incompatible transfusion group. It was uh, 84 millimeters of mercury versus 45, but still a very significant difference in how much hypotension was induced by this essentially stimulus that caused DIC. So somehow treating with heparin was able to avoid it in these experimental models. That's really interesting. It suggests that the clotting part of DIC, which was presumably being prevented by the heparin, is contributing to a state of shock. Is that fair to say? Is that yeah, what that's implying? Exactly. Okay. So let's go back to your kind of your excellent medical student's question or your excellent medical student's excellent question. <laughs> is, 
Uh, never the too many medical excellence. Student. Yes. <laughs> Superlative. What what kind of shock is it? Yeah. So, um, and as we were discussing earlier, uh, tailored therapy or sort of like discussing these hemodynamic parameters always gets me a little bit confused. So it was a great learning point. But thinking about it, where is the clotting that we are preventing by this heparinization? So we were able to see in a lot of these postmortem models that the clotting was mostly in these microvascular beds and specifically in the pulmonary arteries and the pulmonary circulature. The challenge is actually measuring pulmonary pressures in the setting in which you have clotting blocking off a lot of the pulmonary capillaries. And so one of the really interesting experimental models that provides some evidence that there might be essentially an obstructive physiology because of those clots, and specifically a pulmonary obstructive physiology because of those clots, is this group that what they did is they injected phenoxybenzamine, which is an alpha-1 antagonist, that can act essentially as a pulmonary vasodilator. And what they found was, was that that actually- Was this in humans? It was actually, <laughs> it was some in humans and some in dogs. So it's like a, a paper with like 40 humans and 30 dogs. I have no idea. But what they found was that that actually prevented a lot of the essentially decrease in cardiac output and the evolution of the shock that they were, that they found in these induced DIC models or in these human these human patients that they were observing with DIC. Um, And so there was some thought that essentially they were mobilizing these clots further downstream and that that was preventing the the pulmonary capillaries from getting blocked up and causing this diffuse obstructive picture. So Hannah, would it be fair to say that in some ways DIC is causing many thousands of small pulmonary emboli and so leading to the same kind of physiology that you see when you have one large pulmonary embolism. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but that's yeah. kind of what it sounded like. I, I love that way of explaining it. That's essentially the concept that would be suggested by the fact that the phenoxybenzamine was able to prevent some of the like hemodynamic collapse that was associated with inducing DIC or with DIC. Of course, you know, in in any of these patients, the whole issue is that whatever is causing the DIC itself will most likely also cause hypotension. And so there's probably right. a whole lot of different systemic dysfunction that's going on um, by the time that a patient has pre- presented to the point of DIC. But there's also, you know, a lot of other potential outcomes of this kind of totally dysregulated clotting, right? Like, I'm going yeah. wa- to wave my hands and say that there's going to be cytokines that are going to be elicited by that blood fire, right? And like cytokines, yeah, <laughs> cytokines, and like I don't know, like the platelets are full of serotonin, and that's going to get released when you know in these microthrombi and vasodilate. I don't know; those are other kind of potential explanations that came to mind to me, in addition to the potential for kind of uh, an obstructive physiology. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is that when if 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 Hannah had had posed to me before we were recording, you know, Tony, does DIC lead to shock or lead to you know, increased vascular tone, I would have guessed that these patients have increased vascular tone because all that endothelial injury is going to lead to decreased amounts of nitric oxide. And so they're going to end up, there's going to be a a ton of vasoconstriction. So I'm actually kind of surprised Mm. that DIC is in itself a cause of shock, but I didn't even think about this idea of all these microthrombi leading to obstruction. It didn't even dawn on me that that would be happening. So Hannah, can I ask another question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, earlier I, I, I made an analogy that 
it probably is faulty for a number of reasons, right? The idea that you know DIC is just a number of small thrombi as opposed to an enormous pulmonary embolism. Um, and earlier, you mentioned data in dogs where heparin kind of mitigated the hypotension associated with DIC. So I feel like the question follows, like, should we ever consider using heparin as a treatment in, in the setting of DIC? I mean, I feel like uncomfortable even asking that, but is there anything you can offer on that? Yeah, it is It is not something that I a priori would have like thought about as something that is used in patients with DIC. Uh, and of course, sort of other reasons that patients who have DIC could have shock would also include hemorrhage. But the short answer to your question, Tony, is no, probably not particularly for the bleeding risk. There is some very low quality evidence. So the International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis, they have like a combined guidelines for treatment of DIC. These are probably a million different sort of clinical phenotypes that we are lumping into this category of DIC. And so I think one of the the sort of phenomena that you see is that there are probably patients who have a lower bleeding risk and more thrombosis, but they don't actually define sort of how to determine or classify those patients. But in those patients, they say you can consider using heparin for DIC, but there's not really like a great indication for it. Okay, that's helpful. I don't know, Avi, uh, before we get to take-home points, any any additional questions? No, I think this is really insightful and to me rings true and feels very plausible like that the physiology of this, that, yeah. that having this kind of this disseminated intravascular coagulation could lead to could could again I it's I I wouldn't go as far to say that it's the source of the shock right because there's something right. that started the DIC usually sepsis um, or some other major insult that's probably the main cause but that that the DIC itself could be contributing to a state of shock to me is actually makes a lot of sense and I I kind of wish I had thought of it before this way I definitely never had and so I I learned a lot thank you. And, and I think there's patients that, you know, we'll admit a patient with APML, right, who may have DIC, and that patient may be in shock or may have hypotension, and who knows, maybe it's not, we don't have to go search, well, we should, by the way, still go searching for an infection, but I, I would not have otherwise thought that maybe the DIC in association with their AML could be a risk factor for shock. That didn't even dawn on me. Um, so I, I think this is valuable, but I think to your point, Avi, we got to assume it's that 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 thing mm-hmm. that's triggering the shock, usually sepsis, that's the cause of the hypotension and not the DIC itself. Totally. It's what is so that funny that yeah. No, go ahead. Oh no, it's just it's so funny that you say that that would be intuitive to you because to me, I mean, you guys know, I initially completely thought it was going to be the other direction. I totally thought it was going to be some kind of distributive shock from the hemolysis and the physiology of nitric oxide. And then I sort of like talked through all of this with a with a friend of mine who's also an intern whose name is Moses. And um, he was like, oh, well, yeah, that totally makes sense. Like, well, there would be all of this diffuse pulmonary clotting and then it would cause obstructive shock. And I was like, how did you come up with that? It took me like so much literature review to piece together. All I've been thinking about is Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> oh, yeah. God, this, Avi. The fire Talk started about dating itself. yourself. Yeah. DIC didn't start the fire, you know, but... <laughs> well, it did start the fire, it may not, but it may not in and of itself cause the hypotension. <laughs> All right, um, Hannah, you got any take-home points for us? Yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest take-home point is just that DIC itself can be causing some component of the hypotension that we see in these very sick patients. 
um, and that likely a component of DIC's contribution to systemic hypotension in these patients uh, is probably from this diffuse obstruction of the pulmonary vasculature. It's probably a whole lot going into it, but that that's one thing um, to sort of think about this like obstructive physiology. Fantastic. Um, all right, well, that wraps up this episode of The Curious Clinicians. Uh, thanks again for joining us. And if you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point that you think we should feature on the show, just go ahead and tag us on Twitter. Uh, and until next time, I've been Tony Brew. I'm Hannah Abrams. And I'm Avi Cooper. You can also join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have the show notes for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, please visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curious clinicians for more information. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye.